Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of the American Social Fabric podcast titled State Power. Welcome back to the seventh episode of the American Social Fabric Podcast. Uh, to all the uh, pre-existing listeners, and hello to anybody new who's popping in and trying out the podcast. Uh, I hope you find some value in it. I hope you find it interesting. Um, and yeah, please feel free to leave some comment in the Q&A section, which I will leave. I think it's only available in the Spotify version of the podcast, but you know, if you can leave a comment anywhere, and I should be able to pick it up. So this week, we will be going through a letter sent from James Madison to Thomas Jefferson, dated October 24th, 1787, so about a month after the wrapping up of the Constitutional Convention and the beginning, really, of the ratification debate in the states in the U.S. And then after discussing the letter and the ideas in that letter, we'll move on to end with something positive, um, as I like to with every episode, you know, just kind of end on something upbeat and something to move forward with and think about as we go into the rest of the week here. So I'd like to begin with a little historical context setting and some details about James Madison, just to kind of, you know, bring everybody back up to speed on on him and kind of his place as a founding father and in the early parts and development of the U.S. Um, So he was a Virginian. He was born in 1751 and he died in 1836. So his life kind of spanned over a very important and a big developmental phase of the U.S., and I always think it's interesting when, you know, reading about the founding fathers or about the early U.S. history, uh, kind of compare dates to events in our current day for reference. So in this instance, he died in 1836. You know, that's less than 30 years before the start of the Civil War. So the period between his death and the Civil War is less than between now and the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, in 1990, which is it's kind of crazy to think about. But that's just an aside and something small. But I think, nevertheless, interesting to think about. Prior to the Constitutional Convention, uh, he was a main proponent of starting the Constitutional Convention and preparing for it. Uh, as I've noted in an earlier episode, you know, he did a lot of homework before the convention and kind of came in with a with an outline that ultimately was largely the skeleton of the Constitution. It's called the Virginia Plan, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about more about that later. So not only was he a significant drafter of the Constitution, but he was also a significant drafter of the Bill of Rights. And after the Constitutional Convention, he fought hard for the ratification of the Constitution, being a main author of the Federalist Papers. And after the ratification of the Constitution, he would go on to become a member of the House, uh, an advisor to George Washington, and a Secretary of State under Thomas Jefferson, where he kind of oversaw the Louisiana Purchase. Madison then replaced Jefferson as president and served two terms as the fourth president of the United States from 1809 to 1817. During this period, he was the president during the War of 1812. So as I noted earlier, this letter was written in 1787. During this period, Madison was working in support of the ratification of the Constitution, 
and Jefferson was actually in France representing the United States. So this letter is very much Madison bringing Jefferson up to speed on the events of today, both their personal events between them, because they had a close relationship, and the events of the country and of the uh, development of the Constitution and the ratification of it. And after kind of summarizing some other letters that Madison has sent to Jefferson that probably haven't arrived in some other like introductory matters. He moves into kind of his analysis of the convention and the status and ratification of the constitution. I think the most interesting thing about this, this whole introductory part is him informing Jefferson about the delegates at the constitutional convention's willingness and desire to not see the U.S. split up, which I think it seems like an obvious thing. Like, of course, they wouldn't want that from a future perspective, like looking back on the constitution and kind of knowing the history of the U.S. since then. However, I think it's fascinating to see that Madison felt the need to tell Jefferson that or felt the need to inform him that there was no other delegates who were arguing in favor of it. Uh, to quote the letter, he says, You will herewith receive the result of the convention, which continued its session till the 17th of September. I take the liberty of making some observations on the subject, will help you make, which will help to make up a letter, if they should answer no other purpose. It appeared to be that the sincere and unanimous wish of the convention to cherish and preserve the union of the states. No proposition was made, no suggestion was thrown out in favor of the partition of the empire into two or more confederacies. It was generally agreed that the objects of the union could not be secured by any system founded on the principle of a confederation of sovereign states. A voluntary observance of the federal law by all members could never be hoped for. A compulsive one could evidently never be reduced to practice, and if it could, involved equal calamities to the innocent and the guilty, the necessity of a military force both obnoxious and dangerous, and in general a scene resembling much more a civil war than an administration of a regular. Hence was embraced the alternative of a government, which instead of operating on the states, should operate without their intervention on the individuals composing them, and hence the change in the principle and proportion of representation. So again, I think it's fascinating that Madison felt the need to inform Jefferson that nobody argued in favor of breaking up the United States as a political organization into multiple confederations. Uh, he then, interestingly as well, moves directly in the point saying that it was agreed that the government the federal government needs to operate kind of outside of the states and needs to operate apart from them, although it is, I guess, governing in tandem with them. Basically saying that if it was operating as a confederation of states, there's two options. One would be to rely on the voluntary acceptance of the states on federal law, or the alternative would be compulsive. And neither of these were good because neither of them would work in the long term. Therefore, he says that it was agreed upon that the government would operate not on top of the states, but apart from them and without their intervention based on the consent and representation of the members of the states. I think this is an extremely interesting nuance that Madison puts in the letter and describes, but is incredibly significant for how our system operates today. You know, I guess we take it for granted that the federal government operates based on rep the representing American citizens, but not the states themselves. And while the states and the federal government uh, pass laws and they govern in tandem, they are two separate individual things and the states don't have direct representation themselves in the federal government. 
and it seems like such a small little quote here in this in this letter, but it represents a significant aspect of our government itself. Moving on from that introductory section, Madison then kind of lays out the groundwork of the main body of this letter and the main issues dealt with at the Constitutional Convention. He says that this groundwork being laid, the great objects which presented themselves were to unite a proper energy in the executive and a proper stability in the legislative departments with the essential characters of a Republican government, two, to draw a line of demarcation which would give the general government every power requisite for general purposes and leave to the states every power, and four, to adjust the classing pretensions of the large and small states. He then goes on to say that each of these objects was pregnant with difficulties. The whole of them together formed a task more difficult than can well be conceived by those who were not concerned in the execution of it. Madison then ends this summary of the issues, the main issues and debates of the Constitutional Convention with thoughts similar to Benjamin Franklin's from the first episode of this podcast, where he's essentially saying, when you get together all these people with different opinions and different flaws, it's amazing that something so nearly perfect was able to be produced and agreed upon by these people. He says that adding to these considerations the natural diversity of human opinions on all new and complicated matters, it is impossible to consider the degree of concord which ultimately prevailed as less than a miracle. You know, and I think it would be accurate to call it a miracle. And I find it surprising that he called it a miracle then. Can you imagine the difficulty with the people running the country today would have forming a government, forming a new government, agreeing on the terms of that government, and then following through on it and implementing it on a day-to-day basis. It's kind of shocking that this ever succeeded. I think a couple episodes ago, I I'd referred to America as, as the country where lightning struck, and I think this exemplifies it perfectly. So moving on to the first great object that he discussed, which was to unite a proper energy in the executive and proper stability in the legislative departments. So James Madison goes on to talk about the issues that they discussed at the convention and the problems deciding on the extent of the powers of the executive, the extent of powers of the legislator. And these issues included, and you can go read them in the in the letter, which I will link in the description here if you want the full discussion. But Effectively, he wanted, they wanted to know, you know, how many persons would compose the executive branch? Would it be a single president, as we actually turned out with? Would it be a number of persons as like a, a council? Would the, what would the powers of this executive be? Would they have the right to override the legislator or not? What would the term of the executive office be? Would it be, you know, you know two years or would it be seven years? What would their reelectability be within the government? Would they be able to then run for Senate after they leave the presidency? How would they be elected? Would they be elected? Would they be chosen by the people? Would they be chosen by the exec, the state executive? So would the governors of the states elect them, or the legislatures of the state elect them, uh, or would Congress choose them? Would like almost like a parliamentary system where you have the congressional peoples voting on a ballot that would then be confirmed by the Senate, or would the Senate choose? And then what would be the tenure? How would they be removed from office? This is kind of shocking to think about today, but one of the main ideas back then was a kind of a good behavior system where the person would be in office so long as they weren't impeached or removed from office by the legislature. That seems like a terrible idea given history and and leaders, but that was an idea they had. Again, similar to the point I just made earlier about how it's a miracle that our constitution got formed. It's interesting to think from, you know, a fly on a wall perspective and and how 
today much of this stuff is theoretical because it's already decided you know how it happened you know we now have a two-term limit on the presidency george washington set the standard of that if not you know he didn't set the law but he set the standard for that you know we had fdr who was president for four terms i believe so it's interesting to go back and think about the people sitting in a room deciding this, deciding the powers of the presidency, deciding, you don't know how they were elected, because today we all take it for granted. But back then, this was novel areas of law and government that, you know, if they chose wrong, it could ruin the whole system. Madison then goes on to discuss many of the same issues with regards to the Senate, um, you know, term limits, uh, powers of appointment, things like that. The one thing I did want to highlight here from his discussion is that he refers to the Senate as the great anchor of the government. That's interesting. I had never heard of that, and I didn't know that, that the Senate was given that much importance back then, or it was thought of that way. Maybe it was just Madison who thought of it that way, but it's still significant nonetheless that they would consider the Senate the anchor of the government and not the executive, which you know is the leader of the country. Or the House, which is the, I guess, the representative body of the government that the average citizen would vote for back then. So moving on from this discussion and away from the executive and the legislative branch fundamentals, I guess I would describe it as, Madison moves into really what is the meat of his letter, and that is a discussion of state power. State power as it regards or as it relates to the federal government and the federal government's ability to override the states. Now, I'm actually pretty surprised at the range of opinions and the range of options that were debated at the convention with regards to the states. Madison says in his letter that Everything was debated from complete abolition of the states to a complete and unchecked power in the legislature to legislate a control of the states by the legislature. They called it a negative, but I assume that means that it's some form of ability to directly override state law or the ability to legislate states much more broadly than we currently have. I think that this this would be pretty surprising to most modern audiences that I mean, we hold the existence of states and the powers of states to be quite high in our society. So to think that many of the founding fathers were arguing for a much stronger legislature is actually pretty surprising. Now, Madison, of course, says that what they ultimately landed on was a limited state or excuse me, a limited federal legislature, meaning that they didn't have a complete discretion in what they passed laws on um, and that there was no negative, meaning that the legislature could not directly override states in the manner that they wanted to. So Madison goes on to say that he actually was in favor of a negative on the state governments, meaning that he was in favor of the federal legislature having control or a check on the state governments, basically an override. And he says this is for two reasons. First is to prevent encroachments on the general authority, and two is to prevent instability and injustice in the legislation of the states. So Madison's first point about preventing encroachments on the general authority he says that this is important because without such a check in the whole over the parts, the system involves the evils of imperia and in imperio, which I believe means states within the states. So you'd have kind of competing sovereigns, competing forms of government, struggling to control the direction of the country and, and the citizens of the United States. He goes on to say, if a complete supremacy somewhere is not necessary in every society, a controlling power at least is so by which the general authority may be defended against encroachments of the subordinate authorities, and by which the latter may be restrained from encroachments on the other. Now he feels that this is important because encroachments of the states on the general authority sacrifices of national to local interests. So he's concerned that local interests will override national interests 
weaken the U.S. and impose local concerns on general U.S. citizens on, and on citizens across the United States. Now, Madison feels the structure of the American Constitution protects both state interests and individual interests, and therefore the federal legislature should have the complete power to legislate. He says that in the American Constitution, the general authority will be derived entirely from the subordinate authorities. The Senate will represent the states in their political capacity. The other house will represent the people of the states in their individual capacity. The former will be accountable to their constituents at moderate, the latter at short periods. The president also derives his appointment from the states and is periodically accountable to them. So his opinion is that the states, because they back then they would choose the senators in the Senate, that their rights or their interests and concerns were represented, and therefore the state legislature, or excuse me, the federal legislature, should have the ability to check the state level. They should, the federal legislature should be the final say on matters of national concern, and that the state shouldn't be able to create conflicting or local con localized laws that impact the whole country. On this point, I only really agree with Madison to a limited extent. I think that the balance between state and federal powers is one of the most important parts of our government. The ability of states to adjust to local concerns is important. It's not a weakness. It's an inherent strength in our system that the states can adjust to the desires of their people. Now, I think that this may be an issue that has kind of played out with time and Madison today may have the opinion that the federal government's far too strong. So I'm not sure where he would fall given a modern context. But given that, you know, U.S. law has gone in the direction currently where the federal government, where they have the right to legislate, does kind of have the final say. They have the supremacy clause and they have the ability to not have their laws interfered with by states in our court system. It does kind of create the situation Madison wants. However, I don't think that it should be a blanket negative on state laws. And I think that state legislatures and their ability to adjust more quickly than federal government is important. So moving to Madison's second main point, he says that a constitutional negative on the laws of the states seems equally necessary to secure individuals against encroachments on their rights. The mutability of the laws of the states is found to be a serious evil. The injustice of them has been so frequent and so flagrant as to alarm the most steadfast friends of republicanism. Madison then goes on to support this, basically arguing that the majorities will always seek to suppress and strip away the rights of the minorities. He goes in a pretty interesting argument that's it's kind of too long to contain here in this podcast. However, I suggest you go read it. But the crux of what he argues is, in a large society, the people are broken into so many interests and parties that a common sentiment is less likely to be felt and the requisite concert less likely to be formed by a majority of the whole. The same security seems requisite for the civil as for the religious rights of individuals. If the same sect form a majority and have the power, other sects will be sure to be depressed. So his argument is basically that because minorities will seek to suppress minorities and because in a smaller society, this is felt more strongly and it's more easy to achieve this suppression that a larger society is better at protecting the rights of individuals. And in fact, he says that the whole purpose of government or the whole purpose when you're forming government is to make the government sufficiently neutral between the parts 
of the society to control one part from invading the rights of the other, and at the same time, sufficiently controlled itself from setting up an interest adverse to that of the entire society. So in, in Madison's mind, effectively, government's role is to moderate the interests of various groups within the society, but also be controlled enough itself to not begin invading on people's individual rights. And that a larger society is necessary to achieve that because once you get to larger groups, it becomes more difficult to form a single major, a majority opinion that will override the minority opinions. I find this point very interesting. And while I haven't I guess, gathered all of my thoughts on this point. I will say, given how history played out with the civil rights movement, civil rights reforms, and the use of federal law and power to implement things like desegregation of schools and just the kind of general legal restrictions on people of color within the U.S. and especially in the holdout states in the South, I think that Madison may be proved right on this point. So moving on. I think the third main point that Madison brings up as discussed at the Constitutional Convention, I don't think it really warrants much discussion. It's basically the disagreements between small and large states about representation in the federal government. Of course, the large states want it all to be proportional to the populations of the states, and the smaller states want it to be equal representation for every state. So basically, both sides are arguing to give themselves more power, and it all comes out to what we have today, where it's, you know, two senators in the Senate. So in that regard, everyone has equal representation in the House. It is proportional based on population. And with that, Madison makes an abrupt adjust, um, transition back to kind of just like normal worldly affairs. He goes from like this political philosophy discussion to updating Jefferson on the crops, updating Jefferson on the weather, things like that. And then he kind of uh, ends it there. So I think with that, I'll end it there and let's move to something more positive. So the good this week comes from Ritual. Um, He's an author and he was a lawyer and he does ultra marathons, I guess, but uh, he was on the Tim Ferriss podcast uh, on January 5th and about an hour and 56 minutes into the episode, as they're kind of wrapping up, Ritual made a point that I think is really good. He says that the, the world feels divided, broken and contentious. But it's really just the media that wants us to feel that way when you go out into the world you know on a nice vacation with your family or to the market that's not really the world that exists so next time you get worked up listening to something like that just remember that that's not reality and with that i think we'll wrap up this episode next week we will go into jefferson's response to madison so i think that should be an interesting read and um, as usual i will post a link to this week's reading in the description to the podcast so that everybody can see it if they want to and read it and kind of see the full context that I wasn't able to cover here. And I'll also post a link to the book that I'm using as my primary source for all of these texts and where I'm kind of getting the the rhythm and the, the order we're going in, in case you'd like to follow along or buy the book for your own reading. Um, and on that, I would say have a great weekend and rest of your week here. And uh, we'll talk to you next Wednesday.